top stories of the week. Victoria asks, who's got my Pfizer? New South Wales says, it's me. What are you going to do about it? Health Minister Greg Hunt says the Pfizer emails probably went to his spam folder. And remember Afghanistan? Apparently that's still a thing. All that plus more on News Weekly. Hi, I'm Sami Shah and this is the new satire podcast that punches the headlines in the head weekly. Dude, where's my Pfizer news now? Capitalism versus communism. Christianity versus Islam. Ali versus Frazier. Marvel versus DC. Oral versus anal. We live in a world where all the choices are reduced to binary and the divisions between them too wide to bridge. In America, that polarization has led to the sort of red state versus blue state narrative that will see the country divided more and more each day, until one day there will literally be two Americas. One where abortions are banned, Jesus loves guns and everyone names their children Trump as they feed them horse dewormer. And another America where children are taught to read using copies of the New Yorker. Everyone is preemptively cancelled and Joe Biden does absolutely nothing but is loved for it. In Australia, our greatest division isn't Liberals versus Labour, as so many think it is, nor is it your footy team versus some other footy team. I don't care enough to Google the names of footy teams to even make that example more accurate. In Australia, the truly defining choice is between Melbourne and Sydney. It's Laneways versus the Harbour. It's Daniel Andrews versus Gladys Berejiklian. It's living in a city designed on a grid with relatively affordable rental prices where everyone doesn't hate each other to living in a city designed by a hallucinating epileptic where the rental prices for a shoebox-sized studio apartment is your firstborn, secondborn and every nice memory you might have of your parents. Oh, and everyone hates each other so much, they had a literal race riot a decade ago and they talk about it like it was a cultural high point. But the harbour sure is pretty. That war between the two lockdown cities escalated this week when Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews took aim at the blatant bullshit that is the allocation of Pfizer vaccines to New South Wales. I signed up to a national plan to vaccinate our nation, not a national plan to vaccinate Sydney. What I didn't know was that Premier Berejiklian's in a sprint while the rest of us are supposed to do some sort of egg and spoon thing. It comes after mounting evidence that New South Wales received preferential treatment and adoring sympathy from the federal government, while Victoria was constantly criticised and mocked for identical circumstances. This bias came in the form of praise for the New South Wales Premier, quickly releasing funds to aid New South Wales residents in lockdown and slapping Victoria across the head every time it asked for a serve of ice cream. Please, sir. I want some more. Defenders of New South Wales have pointed out that New South Wales is in more dire circumstances. And if Victoria wanted the vaccine so badly, they should have also ignored health advice and delayed the lockdown as much as possible, announced a new end to lockdown while the hospitals are still clogged with patients and prioritised private schools full of rich kids who will likely grow up and join the Institute of Public Affairs wearing bow ties and looking like the shithead villain in Centre for Woman. Premier Berejiklian, meanwhile, has announced that once 70% vaccination has been achieved, retail and gyms will reopen and home visits will be allowed once again. The kind of things you can do when your state receives so much Pfizer, people are popping it as an after-dinner digestive. You've got mail.
Did they try texting instead news now? Part of the reason why states are seeing such an unequal distribution of Pfizer is because of growing evidence that Australia might have ignored early attempts by the pharmaceutical company to deliver vaccines in a timely fashion. Newly released documents show Pfizer emailed the Department of Health in late June of 2020, asking for a meeting with the Health Minister Greg Hunt. That email wasn't replied to until three days later, which, to be honest, is at least how long it takes me to reply to emails as well these days because we're all so over email. Except the reply wasn't sent by Minister Hunt, but an official working for him. And it took another five months for an agreement to be reached. And then only for 10 million doses, far behind America, UK, most of Europe, Japan and Canada. Pfizer, much like the PlayStation 5, reached Australia last and is still not fully available here. Greg Hunt has accused the opposition party of trying to undermine the vaccine rollout, something that he probably believes is his government's job. Meanwhile, in an attempt to make up for the shortfall, the Prime Minister has announced a swap deal with UK, with Boris Johnson sending across 4 million Pfizer doses to Australia, and in return we send them probably Tony Abbott. This is off the back of a similar swap deal struck with Singapore. You know things are bad when our vaccine acquisition plan is the same as someone with a crap deck of cards at a Magic the Gathering convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a guy news now. If the only way to win favour with the federal government and its propaganda wing News Corp is to have a Liberal Party state government, then Victoria might as well get used to having his dinner tray slapped out of its hand for a while longer. In the first quote-unquote leadership spill in a long while, or coup as it's called in the rest of the world, the Liberal Party of Victoria replaced party leader Michael O'Brien with Matthew Guy. It was shocking news, mostly because no one knows who Michael O'Brien is and no one cares who Matthew Guy is. I'm not even convinced those are real names. Matthew Guy sounds like a placeholder name for a character in a John Grisham novel until Grisham comes up with a more plausible name. If Matthew Guy is familiar, it's probably because he looks almost identical to his biggest supporter, Tim Smith. Apparently, you cannot be a member of the Liberal Party of Victoria unless you look like a squidgy version of that guy in primary school who smelled his fingers a lot. Guy used to be the leader of the party until they were resoundingly defeated in the 2018 state election. The key to avoiding another overwhelming loss like that is to do exactly the same thing as last time. You think the state liberals were copying from the federal Labour playbook. In recapping his career so far, the media has focused on that time he had a lobster dinner with an alleged mafia boss. Except the reason he was rejected at the polls the first time round was because voters focused on his racist fear-mongering, proving that Australian media wouldn't know racism if racism became a presenter on every time slot in every show on every channel. Which it basically already is. He is expected to lead the local Liberal Party into another election loss, after which he'll be replaced by Michael O'Brien, who will then be replaced by Matthew Guy, who will then be replaced by Michael O'Brien, who will then reveal he was Matthew Guy all along. By this time, no one will care because humanity had left for the stars a million million years before, and Earth will be released from its orbit by a rapidly cooling sun, spinning out across the universe with a lone Matthew Guy, Michael O'Brien superorganism feeding on the planet's core, vowing to win the next election. 
We don't need no education news now. The education minister Alan Tudge feels students these days need more fantasy and science fiction in their curriculum. Speaking to Triple J's hack, he said national history curriculum for schools paint an overly negative view of Australia. But I want people to come out having learnt about our country with a love of it rather than a hatred of it. Apparently worried that children are as lacking in critical thinking as he is, he's pushed back against a new curriculum which would include more perspectives from First Nations history. He's worried that without sufficient obscuring of facts, children are not going to protect it as a million Australians have through their military service and 100,000 people have died in the protection of those um, of, 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 of those things and to defending them. Apparently the problem with teaching ninth graders that Australia's history is complicated is that they won't then go off to die in a third world country that America and England need to secure for oil. Instead of Anzac Day being presented as the most sacred of all days in Australia, where we stop, we reflect, we commemorate the 100,000 people who have died for our freedoms, um, instead it's presented as a contested idea Tudge said, even though the curriculum at no point presented it as contested, proving the education minister lacks in basic reading comprehension skills. This ongoing war over which history gets portrayed has been going on since at least John Howard, who rejected the black armband view of history, probably because the armband wasn't white. It's a debate with two sides. Those who want the make-believe version of history that doesn't hurt the feelings of oversensitive members of the Liberal Party who love saying facts don't care about your feelings while flinching at actual facts. Or the actually factually accurate version of history that teaches a complex understanding of how the world we live in was achieved for better and for worse and that we need to fully engage with that complicated legacy. What it isn't about is the part of history in which Alan Tudge has been accused by the Auditor General of awarding funding that was supposed to go to suburbs that needed it, instead giving it to marginal seats in the last election which his party then coincidentally won. It's weird how these culture wars flare up just when there's possible evidence of corruption that might better dominate the news headlines. Pass failed states news now. Former Afghan president Ashraf Ghani has said that leaving Kabul was the most difficult decision of his life, but did it to keep the city's 6 million residents safe. He made the statement from the United Arab Emirates, which is a lot safer than Kabul. For him. The residents of Kabul are not in the United Arab Emirates. They're still in Kabul. Ghani is a PhD from Columbia University, who is one of the leading international experts on failed states. No, I'm not making that up. I promise this isn't me being a dick. He literally wrote a book called Fixing Failed States. It's like if Stephen King decided to stop writing horror novels and just dressed up as a clown and crawled into a gutter himself. When you're down here with me, you float down! Mr. Ghani denied fleeing with money, calling the claims he took $169 million with him as baseless. The claim was made by a spokesperson for the Russian embassy in Kabul, which means in this case Ashraf Ghani is probably the one telling the truth. The Russian embassy is like the boy who cried wolf, except the wolf ate the boy, ate the village, then cried boy instead of wolf while being ridden by a shirtless Putin. 
That's all from this, the first issue of News Weekly. If you liked it, tell your friends. Don't forget to rate it and leave a comment on iTunes. If you want to support News Weekly and get access to tons of behind-the-scenes stuff, head over to patreon.com slash Shah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. Plus, there are comedy shows, short stories, and lots of other things on there. I'm Sammy Shah. Join me next week as I punch more news in the head weekly. Weekly.